Welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Nicastro. Today's episode of the podcast is a replay of a panel discussion I had recently with Philip Carter of IDC, Frederick Tuck of Maersk Drilling, and Marnie Martin of IFS. In this conversation, we talk about the fact that research shows only 25% of companies achieve ROI from digital transformation efforts. We discuss some of the reasons why that research might reflect such a low number, and we also talk about some of the ways that companies can overcome legacy thinking and legacy practices to increase their likelihood of measurable success. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. You can always find more content by visiting us at futureoffieldservice.com. And as always, thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's event. We are here today to talk about digital transformation and what it takes to achieve ROI on your digital transformation initiatives in today's landscape. Uh, we know that digital transformation is a key enabler of um, creating better customer experiences and moving toward delivering outcomes, but a lot of companies fall prey to some traditional practices and behaviors that can inhibit uh, the level of success that most folks are looking for. So we're going to dive in today to some of the things that um, you might want to work on doing to achieve the ultimate success and maybe some of the things that you want to avoid doing to achieve the ultimate success. My name is Sarah Nicastro. Uh, I run Industry Resource Future of Field Service, and I will be your moderator for today's event. Uh, I am joined today by a wonderful panel, and I'm going to ask them now to briefly introduce themselves. Frederick, I'm going to start with you. Thanks, Sarah, for the introduction. Uh, my name is Frederick Took. I'm Head of Innovation Scouting for Maersk Drilling, uh, which is a Danish uh, headquartered uh, offshore drilling operator. And my role is uh, then building the ecosystem with the outer world, focusing mostly on startups to bring in to uh, help us solve the, uh, the pro products we are running. Excellent. Well, thank you for being here, Frederick. Phil, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Thanks, Sarah. Um, and thanks a lot for, for having me. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is uh, Philip Carter. I'm the Chief Analyst for IDC in Europe, and I also run our global C-suite tech agenda program. Quite a long title, that. Apologies. <laughs> uh, based in Munich. And uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, another learning adventure with this group on digital transformation in action. Excellent. Thank you, Phil. And Marnie? So I'm Marnie Martin, the president of the Service Management Global Business Unit, and it really is a pleasure to be with an, a great IFS customer, as well as IDC, who we work with on how we continue to achieve the digital outcomes that are so in demand today. It's really a pleasure to be part of this panel, Sarah, and thanks for hosting. Thanks, Marnie. Okay, so we have uh, three different perspectives on a very important topic, which is going to make for a very fruitful conversation. Um, so Phil, to start us off, I'm hoping you can share a little bit of context from the research that shows you know, how the pandemic has impacted digital transformation efforts and, and what you're sort of seeing right now in, in the space. Sure, yeah. So. I think what happened in 2020 was an inflection point for IT spend and digital transformation efforts more specifically, uh, because it was the first time ever 
we saw a lack of correlation between GDP trends and, and IT spend. So normally, so if you go back to the financial crisis, um, you know, significant drop in GDP, IT spend follow that very closely. Mm -hmm. um, look at 2020, the biggest drop in GDP since World War II, and IT spend held up remarkably well. And that was driven primarily by investments in digital transformation. So we expect that to continue into 2021. Actually, our research shows that we'll hit $1.5 trillion investments in digital transformation globally, um, growing at about 15%. So we are literally hurtling towards our digital destiny. We're moving towards a digital first mindset not just at a, at a business level, but also at a personal level, societal level. I think we can feel that, we can see that. Um, but the problem is that our pre-pandemic research showcases that only 26% of organizations are really delivering an ROI from all of those investments. So that's the, the digital ROI gap, as we call it, and we need mm -hmm. to close that uh, in order to, to drive the next phase as we move to reignite business uh, across the board. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I know that as I conducted interviews with um, you know business leaders throughout last year, there were, were kind of two ends of the spectrum. There were folks that had already invested heavily in digital transformation and were feeling very thankful that they had done so. And then there were folks that realized how much they were lagging behind and how critical it was that they um, get up to speed. So the efforts have increased, um, but we have that 25% that uh, ROI um, metric. So why is that gap so big? Yeah, so um, the, that's, that's a good question. And I think it, it, what you described there in terms of that K-shape, we call it the K-shape uh, recovery in a sense at, a, at an organizational level because there are some organizations on the upslope of the K um, that are leveraging their investments in, in digital technologies to drive competitive advantage into the market. And, and then the ones who are fighting for survival based on the fact that they were slow uh, to, to adopt some of these key technologies. Um, and so the reason for this major digital ROI gap, uh, we also asked, we kind of went into the research on this and asked the follow-on questions, like what, what's, what's the problem here? And the primary reason is the inability to scale due to organizational silos. Uh, so that's the key thing, the key piece of feedback, um, you know, these barriers across traditional organizational structures, uh, which are linked to the technology architectures of the past, legacy technology mm -hmm. architectures of the past. Um, but second on the list, which is also interesting, and I know Frederick uh, can, can talk to this, is, is that the feedback is that IT and security leaders slow us down. Uh, so that there is a sense that business and IT need to come together in a more cohesive fashion in order to drive that scale. Um, we call it the digital dream team. So moving from the C-suite to the future, which is the digital dream team, where every business function becomes a technology function, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, you know they need to raise the, the, the tech IQ across all of those business functions. But IT needs to be at the table as well. Technology needs mm -hmm. to be part of that discussion and helping to drive uh, the, the outcomes that are required to close that ROI gap. Okay. All right. So Frederick, can you tell us uh, a little bit 
your perspective on, you know, how what Phil's describing aligns with with what you've experienced. Yeah, thanks, uh, Sarah, and thanks, Phil, for the analysis for sharing that. That's really interesting stuff. Yeah, uh, and as as Phil also alluded to, you know, things are happening much faster these days, and technology is taking more and more um, a central role in many ways, you know. But what what you used to have is that IT departments was building the foundation for the company and say you can execute and you can get the data from from us, you know. But these days, many times you find new technologies or new vendors that comes in with a different technology perspective where you can execute. And the lifetime also on this, and especially on the COVID times, you know, it hasn't been focused on the ROI. It's been focused on actually de delivering a value to the customer that might not be measurable. One example I have from our industry, you know, when you couldn't travel now so much uh, as, as you used to in the uh, uh, during COVID, when we need to have a technician or a maintenance person out to the rig, you fly them out, you know, by the helicopter and do the maintenance. But now in COVID, it wasn't so easy. So you had to find a way of actually utilizing new technology in actually doing remote maintenance, for instance, where you utilize the people on board, but you have the experts onshore. And that's something that has been more focused on. You don't have a direct ROI on that. That's not a business discussion, a decision. It's a necessity to keep the rig going, you know. So you need to find a solution where then technology played a major part. That that solution wouldn't come from IT in the first instance. You need to find someone who can deliver that to you today, and just make sure that it works because you have a maintenance problem or a challenge on the on the rig. And that's why you need to find other ways of working with these solutions than the traditional way, as as uh, Phil alludes to. And also then the first and foremost, it's not your ROI because that's more a strategic business decision. I'm saying we do this so we can have an ROI on it and we see that this is good for the future of the transformation of the business. But here's more specifically focused on solving an issue here and now that you might only have for six months or 12 months, but you need to solve it. Okay, that makes sense. So so Marnie, Frederick is speaking to, you know, sort of the, um, the internal look at, at what this means and and um, what's needed in terms of evolving to look at things a bit differently. But I'm wondering if you can speak to, you know, how a technology provider like IFS, what is the responsibility there or what is the assistance that IFS can provide in helping close this ROI gap? So let me talk to pick up a couple of themes from Phil and Frederick and then, and then answer your question as part sure. of that. So first, I would say that, that Frederick raises a critical point that often is uh, not communicated or well understood. What technology investments support the continued evolution of the business, i.e. the growth of a, of a healthy business, profitability, et cetera, the strategy that they might already be executing on, but they do need additional technology to continue supporting that growth. So effectively, the ROI is already, in a way, buried into that growth strategy of a business. And then you also will have what I call inflection point investments that will genuinely give ROI on their own. And often those either enable an increase in revenue or greater profitability or something like that that has a very tangible ROI. So I do want to layer in that clarification because we often find gaps that we can help bridge as a vendor looking at, say, upside cases 
what are continued execution of strategy cases, and then what are really, say, ROI cases. And we do that through business value engineering, and then how we plot the project and the outcomes that match to kind of what which of those buckets is primary in a business. You know, ultimately, we want all of our customers here at IFS to grow and grow faster, ideally, than their peers. When you think about the digital dream team, one, I love that concept. And I like to talk a lot about sport analogies. And since two thirds of the panel is in Europe, I'll give an example about Premier League. So often the business feels they are the offense and we need them to be the offense, but there's either a perception and sometimes a reality that IT is playing defense and slows down the offense. So we need to be thinking about how we get a full team to be working together and have the coach or the leader that will really bring them into the Premier League. And that's where I think often when we're looking to scoping out and moving also from the handover of the selling to the implementation to the longer, longer, longer uh, customer success phase, we often don't have that coach or a leader that can bring, say, the offensive and the defensive elements together to work as a team and specifically a Premier League team. So that's where we have activities and actions that we can continue to drive and, and be better at as part of IFS as a vendor. But we're also looking to how we can enable the leaders and the coaches in an organization like Frederick is in his organization to be more effective. And to the extent that there isn't that type of leader in the digital dream team that we call that out and work with our customers to address that. Okay, that makes sense. Frederick, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, from your perspective, what, how would you articulate what it is about a traditional or legacy IT mindset that just does not work for today's digital transformation efforts? Sure, yeah, and, and really good points by Marna there. You know, I, I fully agree with, uh, with your uh, analysis there. It's really interesting. The things we see, uh, I see happening both here and in other companies uh, when it comes to this digital transformation is that there is, for some natural reasons as well, you know, lack of flexibility and adaptability to take on new technologies and, and test them out on the side, more or less, to the legacy system. Uh, and I have examples where we have come up with startups we're working with that comes with a technology that might be set in a different cloud setting, for instance, you know, a different cloud solution. And then we say, we need to have that. They say they need to be hosted in whatever, AWS or whatever. And then if I come to my IT department, they say, no, we're on Microsoft, no discussion, you know? And that just shows the inflexibility because if you could do that and be more flexible, and I understand why they also can't just say yes to everything, you know, because it's a gigantic task of evaluating this and from a risk perspective and everything else, you know, since you, you, you need to have some structure as well. But with the increased speed in, in change in digital, and the need for being out in the market, go to market needs to be fast, you know, they need to be able to be flexible in that sense. We have an example where we now developed a solution with an external startup where our IT department struggling for years to find a, a, a solution for building a performance driven uh, tool. And the startup comes in and do it in two months when we eventually get to go ahead for it. You know, that's it doesn't say that it's always the best solution, but it's a one example, you know, being where it's you need to be taken into that flexibility and see who else can actually come in and do it in an untraditional way 
and by that solving your problem and go to market much faster. Okay. That's so a great. Point. Sorry to jump in, Sarah, but I think you know as, as we, it's like the the emerging technology. Often the digital dream team or a lot of these companies don't have say incubation or early adopter phase uh, programs, or if they do, they get stuck in POC. So you know how, how we're able to embrace new technology, whether it's from an existing vendor or a startup and then really commercialize that, understanding the different phases of technology, maturation, adoption, et cetera, isn't always as crystallized in taking that sort of approach in companies. And I think that's what handicaps them to a different degree, that they're not thinking about, say, technology, uh, say, development, almost like how you develop talent, that you're putting it to work, you're continuing to test it, you're continuing to evolve and challenge it, and eventually, going back to my Premier League example, you have your Premier League star. I think also just building on that, I talk quite a lot about this notion of four-wheel drive innovation, which is taking the speed and mindset from the digital innovation initiatives around the edge into the core as well. Um, and that's basically saying, okay, we need to evolve quickly so that there can't be two speeds of, of technology investment or technology adoption or business business direction it needs to be one speed and that speed is a lot faster than it currently is uh, but that involves people like frederick who sits you know digital innovation initiatives pushing those, those the agenda on the the front the frontiers to come also to bring that mindset into the core well across all of the different business units and that's part of the the, the digital dream team stepping up uh, to this new level around digital investments and outcomes associated with that that's a good point so i think i have a related question frederick to follow up on the point you made okay so so bear with me so Marnie gave the analogy of offense and defense, right? And so my question when you talk about, um, you know, having that startup come in and, and put this solution in place in two months that, you know, you, you had been struggling to do internally, how do you do that in a way that doesn't further that offense-defense divide, right? And, and kind of exacerbate the problem of that, that, divisiveness within the organization yeah that's a really good question and the way we have done it is that you need to you need to work together you know you need to make sure that both parties move you know uh, because there's no like one answer is is the right one you know it's not that you only do startups or you only do core but you have to cooperate both need to move away from where they are you know so in the beginning we, we actually took in the startup to improve the existing solution that they internal team had built you know to emphasize that but in that process they also came to realize that actually the startup had a better solution that we then went with you know so that's that's one way of doing it to, to work together and the other thing that's building on phil's point here is that it's it's also i think that uh companies like us or any old company with a legacy not only in it but a legacy in general and doing the digital transformation is we're not used to that you know we're not we now we're starting to build software basically in our company we're launching or, or building that you know and we don't have the tradition you know it doesn't have that tradition in our company we need to new, find new ways of do, how do you do that you know what's the competences we need 
do we want to build them in and the classical discussion you know we can have that as a separate discussion we want to build them in-house then or do we want to, uh, to buy them you know and and all these discussions that's something which all companies i think are struggling with in order to see how do we want to do this and that's of course again something you need to do together in cooperation we need to bring in the startups to challenge the existing it to some extent and uh, they need to come back to us and challenge us and say you can't just do that you know because it's a lot of other legacy systems and we need to have uh, a control and it's also risk with security and everything else but mm -hmm. i think it's also a, a sort of a middle ground and it's a transition period as well where you go from being saying that it used to service the traditional uh, uh, business while now we are getting into more uh, uh, having a software side to it at least you know where we develop software and that requires new skills mm -hmm. okay so there's an issue of pace i'm sorry phil i didn't mean to, to cut you yeah, off. i would just i would add to that because i think it's a great point that frederick made but also say that uh, what we what we see here is as a way of driving that alignment across the teams uh, is a focus on on metrics that everyone signs up to you know so if you come back to that remote maintenance example that use case that frederick highlighted at the beginning if you've got a metric around mean time to resolution for that uh, use case and IT and the business and digital are all working towards that, suddenly there's a different level of alignment and you bring that speed from the innovation areas into the core as part of the fact that you guys are all going to be measured on that outcome and, and therefore the behavior uh, is in line with what is expected at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so we are talking about um, fostering more collaboration. Okay, we're talking about, Marnie, the point you made about you need a strong cultural leader, i.e. coach, right, that's going to help the team see that it's, it's we're not offense and defense, we're one team, right? And then, um, Phil, to your point, if you can align around metrics or measurements that everyone agrees upon that are driving toward a consistent goal, those are all things that can help alleviate the issue of these silos, which is, as you said, Phil, one of the, the biggest um, contributors to the ROI gap. Um, open to the floor, so, so any of you can jump in. What else? So what else are the important considerations or pieces of advice for folks listening in terms of breaking down these silos, um, creating this collaborative culture and aligning more toward a, a common objective. I'd jump in with incentives and compensation and then I'd love to hear Frederick's thoughts of, from a, being in a company and obviously Phil's from the research. So often we see, and this ties into, I'd say, bridging the divide between speed and outcomes. Does that you know, we need to keep businesses focused on the outcomes that matter most in their transformation projects to make sure they deliver against them, that you don't have scope creep or other opinions that take you away from why you did the project in the first place. But we also find that sometimes the business and IT incentives, how they're compensated and what project success means to them isn't aligned. You know, for example, if IT is compensated on speed of implementation, they might say, hey, let's just copy what we have. That's what we know best. And therefore, we can be the fastest at that. 
when really the business won't get what they wanted out of the technology investment to meet their goals without you know taking that into account the change management additional training etc so I'd be really curious to hear more uh, and I in general I see this across every single customer we support uh, in these initiatives so I'd be really curious to hear Frederick's view on how best that can be tackled pragmatically and then also Phil's related to the research and his recommendations. Yeah, very, very interesting point, Mona, again. So, uh, yeah, uh, my, my first take on, on, on your question, Sarah, is also I think that m most of the products we have now that are, you could call these digitalization products, they are actually initiated by us in innovation, not by IT. And the reason is also, I think, because of the culture we fostered and built up in innovation, where it's a dare to try. You know, we, it's, it's, fine, it's fine to fail, you know, you can fail, but if you do it fast, uh, instead of doing this, I don't say that everybody does waterfall, you know, but it's like bigger products most of the time. I mean, in the IFS implementation, it's a big product and everything. And, and of course, that's, uh, that's one thing. But on the other hand, these digital products we run, we need to try out uh, faster and dare to try, and they can fail, and that's fine. But also, like you say, Mane, the whole incentivizing of how you run these products and why you should do it and everything is super interesting. And uh, I guess Phil have some good comments on his research from other companies as well. Yeah, I mean, it's top of mind uh, around kind of time to value. So there's, that's the balance between speed and outcomes is thinking about the time to value story. And I think there are a few things that we see changing. Number one, regardless of the technology project, they're getting shorter. So even if you think about a large scale ERP project of the past that took five years, that's no longer acceptable. It has to be months, weeks, at least in terms of some level of, of uh, time to value from the, from the, the project. Um, secondly, the, the idea that a business case is created once and then thrown out the window once the project starts is also not acceptable. So you have to have a dynamic business value realization approach for the, the week long or two week or three week, the sprints that are put in place in that much more agile fashion of rolling out a project, regardless if it's gonna take a year or two to finally end, but you, know, you have the checkpoints every uh, week or month to say, okay, how are we on in relating to the metrics coming back to the metrics and and the incentives and uh, behavior associated with that to Mane's point on an ongoing basis it becomes much more dynamic it becomes a, an element that that the elements of that dream team are engaged with and are measured on uh, and therefore are, are, are they vote in up front and then they actually contribute to to making a success the last thing i would say is that you know you look at the, the software vendor relationship with 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 buyers over time and historically it there has been a lot of mis, there's been a mismatch in terms of expectations and now we see, we really we see that there's a big change and you know frederick's point around you know the the rethink around build buy partner acquire that's happening it's really happening and if a software provider isn't able to deliver that time to value in the shorter time frame that i described you know, the, the buyers of the technology will find a different way to do it and to deliver it, you know, to uh, Frederick's point earlier, two months to deliver that time to value because the business has to get that, that outcome in a much shorter time frame. So those would be the three things 
that I would highlight associated with that story around value realization? It's actually a great, those are great points and it made me think of something else. So, you know, I talked about sometimes we don't have coaches or leaders to the degree needed to really drive a transformation. But I'll also say that sometimes projects aren't a bit scoped for what they are. You know, some companies really are going through a learning journey. You know, even though they're contracting for something, they don't know, say, the, 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 what value or what actually they want they want delivered yet okay other companies have really well understood their innovation plans their business models where they want to go etc and then we're really you know that brings almost like a template if you will for execution and then it really is about optimizing time to value so i think it, it is super important and we're trying to do a better job working with our customers with the idea of this return to value, understanding, you know, are we implementing off of kind of a well understood strategy template, they know what they want to do, or is this really more of a learning journey that we need to assume that, you know, we need to move as quickly as possible through the design phase, knowing what we know, but then we're going to have multiple cycles potentially of rework, UAT, et cetera, or we'll have different phases of adoption, et cetera. So, you know, we need to be able collectively, all of us, to drive more clarity on not only, say, the digital maturity of a company for the point that everyone has made, but also is this a learning journey project or is this really more of a templated implementation, you know, business value realization? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Marnie, and it, it makes me think earlier on in the conversation, you know, as we're talking about the the silos within the company being one of the biggest barriers to ROI you know in the in the content that I work on those silos are also one of the biggest barriers to um servitization or advanced services or you know realizing the opportunity of of more strategic service right and so you kind of have two parallel journeys happening where to your point depending on where the company is at in sort of the business journey you know what's the business model how are we innovating what what company are we have we been and who are we trying to be and you know how well defined that is and how much alignment exists on those objectives and how much the silos have already been eliminated in that effort will have a huge impact on what that digital transformation journey looks like right because it is really um you know the huge enabler of all of that progress right so that's a really yes. good point of kind of the um you know the intersection points along those uh for those sure things. i'll make one other point which i know phil has research on uh and, and perhaps we won't ask frederick to comment but uh, and I'll explain why in a moment. You know, it's interesting, and there was a really fascinating piece of research that I read in the last few weeks about how digitally competent most CEOs are, right? If you think about how most CEOs are promoted and get to the C-suite, it's a lot of the business acumen, the relationships with customers, shareholders, et cetera. And the majority of their career, they won't be in the, the digitally active cycles like we are now, whether 
you know, just kind of how Moore's law is, is say, bleeding into everything that we do in technology, uh, including how organizations need to adapt or, you know, this post-COVID era. So, you know, I read the statistic that only about 25% of CEOs feel that they understand how to drive themselves digital realization. And it made me wonder that we should look at perhaps the correlations of, you know, the 25 approximately percent of companies that are getting ROI from the digital investments. Does that match to say the more digitally aware experienced CEOs? Yes or no. You know, how do we not only need to think about business and IT at the implementation level, but also how we're working with the C-suite and boards? So, you know, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Phil, on this. And again, I have no idea if there's actually statistical correlation or not, but I just thought it was really fascinating research. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely in line with a lot of what we're seeing, Mono. So based on our C-suite survey, we asked the question, so who's most likely to be the next CEO in your organization? Um, and first of all, it was COO, uh, second was external hire, and then third was CTO. Um, so that's the first time that we've seen a technology leader on the leaderboard, effectively on the career development path. Uh, and, it, and, because it, it, and it reflects a new reality where, to your point, you need that different understanding around digital and, and technology capabilities uh, in order to, to deliver the new value. So if you look at, there's a really interesting dynamic happening at the moment where there's a correlation that we're looking at between digital maturity and actual valuation, so market valuation. Because uh, we've got an index that tracks digital maturity by company and we look at the stock price over time and you can see a clear correlation. So what does that mean? Well, for the CEO, it means if I'm chasing value, then I need to chase tech, uh, which means I need to ensure that I've got the right level of skills in the organization. And if I'm the CEO, then I need to also ramp up my, my capabilities in that respect. I need to appoint the right technology leader. And there's a huge amount of change in the technology leadership happening in the market at the moment because of that. Um, and I might have to acquire some tech companies, which is, you see that ramping up. We've had two inquiries in the last week of healthcare device manufacturers asking about software acquisitions, you know, so you st I think you will see, and the CFO linked to that is going to have to become a lot more savvy around valuation of tech as they make those investments around what's what's the price to pay for, for the tech and, and you build, again, build by partner. Uh, so that that's a fascinating part of the outcome of this acceleration to our digital destiny that I highlighted earlier. But I don't know, Frederick, it'd be great to get your perspective on this, because I know the CEO of, of Mestrilling is, is kind of big behind the digital transformation of, of the broader organization. But any thoughts on, on how you see that evolving? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, observation, uh, Phil. And, and yes, our CEO, Three years ago, he well, we brought this up, you know, that we wanted to drive digitalization much more, you know, and try it out. He was behind that uh, and was has been supportive of it all the time. So he's actually, and he sees, I guess it's also because he sees his own limits within this space. At the same time, he sees that it's a good thing that we as an organization learn this and try out stuff, you know. So he was very supportive of that. But it's like you say, it's not only in our company, I've spoken to a lot of other C-level people. And one, one guy in another company, he said to me, 
that when we were discussing, he said, I used to not believe in this, you know, with a lot of digitalization. And I said to people, you can't make money by getting clicks. I was wrong, he said, you know, that's the whole the whole new economy, basically. So he said that they changed their mind. So the more examples they see, you know, and the more the more transformation that is happening around, you know, more and more companies now see also at sea levels saying that we, we used to make money of our core business, you know, now we see startups come up or other companies moving much faster and we need to do something about it. And so they, they are awakening in, in to some extent, you know, um, so that's interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, I think just picking on, sorry, go ahead, Sarah. No, it's okay, go ahead. Yeah, what, what, what starting, because I've done a bunch of CEO re uh, interviews recently, and, you know, what I'm starting to hear is that the uh, the potential, the untapped potential around tech has, has been open to them. So they're seeing this. One of them is a train operator, and they managed to uh, get access or, or transfer ownership of a new train in the midst of, of a lockdown completely remotely, similar to the remote example that Frederick mentioned earlier. And now they're not going to go back to an on-site delivery of that asset. It's going to be complete because they realize it's, it's cheaper, it's more efficient, and, and the customer experience is better. So, you know, th that's just a portal into the potential that's in front of them. And I think as a result of that, then the next question is, okay, how do we make sure that this is scalable and outcomes driven across the, the organization? But I, I hear a lot of what Frederick described in terms of, you know, I used to think this way. Now I realize that it needs to be done differently and it's going to be a big part of the business model moving forward. Yeah, it almost seems um, in terms of the, the CEO role that it's really overcoming any sort of legacy thinking or culture. It's more of an awareness and a willingness to put the right team in place than it is necessarily having to have you know the the skills themselves right and and i think that's reflected when you start looking at the organizations that are making the most progress and then you know look at at what the mindset of of that leadership is um frederick i wanted to to come back to the point about you know looking into the future of digitalization um you know your thoughts on some of the work you're doing on building out that ecosystem and the importance of co-innovation with with customers can you talk a little bit about that sure uh yeah because we come to realize yes as, as phil said before as well you know that you need to take these decisions on do you want to build it or buy it or or co-create it or, or have a strategy on that and the best way we found now is that if you we, we need to start with the customer needs and it's so easy to forget that when you sit in a big organization and you think that you have a lot of knowledge, you build something that then the customer doesn't really want or need or at least don't want to pay for, you know. So you need to involve them early on, which we do now in all the products we run, basically starts based on a customer need. Uh, but then again, if we need to have the flexibility and the agility, not the least, to build these things, we don't, if you're going to scale up that internally or take in an external supplier that you have a traditional working re relationship with, it mostly takes too much time. And as Phil said before, you know, the lifetime expectancy of solutions now, the digital ones are shorter and things go faster. It's easy to copy as well from, from your competitors. So that's why we are looking uh, and taking in more and more startups to actually deliver this to us. Because if you find the right startup, and that's of course the, the challenge in this is to find the right deal flows, to find the right startups and evaluate them. 
to make sure that they can deliver this. But if you find them, because uh, I can guarantee you, they are out there. Whatever your problem is, there's a startup who can do this today. There's so many and they are developing so fast. They also die very fast. So you have to be aware of that. You know, you need to be quick and you need to help them to grow. Uh, but if you do that, then you have a much more flexible uh, structure. And as Phil said as well, you know, the, the example I gave before, where we now built a solution for two months, I never met that startup physically. We, we've, I found them online, we negotiated online, they delivered a demo online, they delivered the product online. We just been talking to them by teams all the time. So we never met them, you don't have to. Before it was like, you need to see them in the eyes, you know, and say, hey, yeah, we need, and we need to have a beauty parade with X number of, uh, you know, uh, companies as, as uh, pro, um, procurement would ask you for. And these days, you know, when we find someone that is like, could do this maybe for 80% of the solution, we co-create the rest together because that's the fastest way forward we see. So. For sure. I think, uh, you know, related to the innovation cycle and, and how we build an innovation here at IFS, that is something that continues to accelerate. And of course, you know, we're doing it both for point solutions as well as a broader platform. The startup point is interesting. You know, having, having done startups in my career, uh, early on in my career, I still love how we can partner uh, with these startups, right? And even at IFS as a vendor, you know, there are times that we also will work with them on how we can enable, say, a go-to-market structure, how we can think about embedding them into uh, our applications to accelerate what we're doing and even acquiring them. So, you know, what's great is that you see uh, vendors like IFS that are really looking to how they can be more flexible, faster, more progressive in terms of bringing innovation of the various types that's needed by customers to satisfy their, their end customers. But also, you know, one of the parts of, that I enjoy in my job is getting to know these startups and the ones that are, you know, validated as being uh, in our key verticals and impactful to our customers, thinking about how we can either partner on a go-to-market or, you know, continue to make some interesting acquisitions. Okay. And, and that's a good point, um, on uh, where everybody's, like you say, trying to be more agile, more flexible. You also, as a, as a supplier, can see that uh, you have the opportunity to bring in knowledge on, on some cutting-edge technologies to, to improve your product, you know. But it's interesting because that was one one of our biggest products. They came to me a couple of months ago and said, we have this huge challenge, you know, uh, and we think it's going to take two years to build it. But we heard that you are connected to startups, you know, can you find someone that can do this? And I had this, you know, and I presented them with three startups. They interviewed two of them and came back to me and said, that's amazing. You know, these guys are can do this in three months and they are exactly what we're looking for. We didn't know they existed. Uh, and that's also an eye opener for many companies to see that you know there are other ways of doing this than the traditional way, and that's that's also where you need to be. It doesn't say that startup is the only answer or the answer all the time. It's just an alternative that hasn't been many corporates hasn't considered that before, you know. And now you see that with the increasing pace and everything, you need to look into it at least to see if that's an option. To be pragmatic, you know, again. A lot of companies won't necessarily be as, as progressive as Frederick's and they'll be concerned about the risk of the startup, them running out of money before they can deliver, etc. So, you know, it's it's always a balancing act, but it absolutely yep. is true that there's such a vibrancy of new technology and innovation that's present today. So 
you know, for example, if there are, you know, startups that can get validated with an enterprise customer, but maybe stall out at one, two, three, four, five million in, in revenue, which is often the case, you know, it, at that point, they often have an inflection point, you know, do they say start the private equity journey, how that is, do they align with the strategic, et cetera. And I think, you know, here at IFS, again, we, we are working to be more and more nimble and we bring a lot of very impactful technology to market as part of ERP, FSM, EAM, et cetera. But also, you know, sometimes I, I laugh that Frederick could be, you know, almost our corp dev department, uh, letting us know which startups he thinks are, are most cool for us to go look at. Uh, I think it's a new to. business model, a new business model <laughs> for mass drilling to be the, the startup Every, connector. Exactly. <laughs> Could you really you having run startups myself, I mean, there is such a big step for a startup to move from alpha to beta to really like true enterprise GA. That is not to be underestimated by anyone. Oh. But to the extent you can get a startup at, at exactly the right inflection point and, and do that at a value that is accretive uh, per Phil's point, you know, that is that is really interesting and, and of course something that we also do at IFS. Okay, good. All right, so I'm gonna ask you all one uh, sort of closing question of my own, and then we're gonna try and have a couple minutes for a few audience questions. So just in terms of, of summarizing um, our, our conversation so far today, um, if each of you had to give sort of one key piece of advice for listeners on how to prepare for the future of digitalization, what would that be? Um, so I don't know who wants to start. Phil? I can go. Wrap it up um, with their insights. So you know, we've, we've talked a lot about technology and what have you, and, and technology is what powers our daily lives, our businesses, our future. But the one piece of advice I have to all of you is don't forget the people aspect of it. And specifically, you need the right type of leadership to be successful, whether it's a digital transformation, new business models, your company continuing to perform. So, you know, you need to make sure that you are analyzing, assessing, recruiting, developing, making sure they stay happy, the leaders in your organization, the people that are going to make this happen. Because technology doesn't get implemented on its own, business value doesn't get realized on its own, and if you don't have the right leaders in your organization, then you will be not able to leverage technology, projects, opportunities that you otherwise have. Good. Phil, do you want to go next? Okay. Yeah, we'll let, we'll let Frederick uh, close us off with his, his wise words. <laughs> um, no, so my recommendation is get the order right. Uh, and what I mean by that is start with the business uh, so what is the use case and then the measurement associated with that? So then you measure and you drive the performance off the back of that and then comes the technology. Uh, so use case, me metric, technology, um, and then build up the use case journey. So that becomes the new digital roadmap to prepare for the future where Horizon 3, the longer term mission is clear and the whole digital dream team is on board and agreed on on that ultimate mission and then executes along that roadmap so get the order right 
Good. And Frederick? Yeah, trying to add some value based on all these fantastic advices, you know, from Mona and, and Philip. My and it's it's a personal reflection basically, but I I came to realize this uh, in the last couple of years. Dare to try. Don't sit and plan for too long. Don't sit and think, oh, we should find someone else. We should do this. We should plan more. Or just get, get get give it a go. Give it a try. The the worst thing can happen is you fail. But if you do it small and fast, no big no big harm done, you know. And the other thing then to do that is to start small, and then when you notice it, it's actually functioning, then you can scale it. But don't plan for this massive product that's going to take for years. You know, it's like dare to try. Good. Very I good love advice. that. I mean, the soft skills of of courage and curiosity, I think, are under uh, under analyzed as necessary components to successful uh, digital transformation. I think that's a fabulous point, Frederick. Thanks. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Let's get to uh, a couple of audience questions real quick before we close. Um, so the first is, you mentioned the digital dream team, but for a company where projects have traditionally been led by business or IT, how do we determine who the, the coach is? So who leads the digital dream team? I'm sure Mark's got to Go ahead, Phil. You want me to go? But, so I, um, I, think I think we define the, the interviews to approach the change. Uh, Phil will have some other insights on kind of the personas or the roles perhaps that have been most successful. But, you know, I think you need to look for the people that can work through the conflict, make sure, keep the team on track, be able to motivate and drive the courage and the curiosity to actually get it done. So there are certainly, and I, you know, I'd love to hear Bill and Frederick who kind of the archetypes or the personas that most frequently rise to the top. But you know, I encourage people don't just think of it from a functional perspective. Think about it as who has the the enablers to get it done. And that may that person might come from finance, or it might come from sales, it might come from operations, IT. You know, you don't know necessarily where that person comes from. You know, it might also be a C-suite uh, sponsor. And then, you know, you can figure out once you have the person that has the right leadership and soft skills to run the change, how you complement that. I love the point that Frederick made that, you know, you don't necessarily need a, a CEO that's a CTO, but you need someone that sets the agenda and makes sure that the project, the talents are all staffed appropriately. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say building on that that it's much less about the title, but more about the personality. Uh, and so you, I think the it's the classic T-shaped person, someone who's strong in in key detail areas where linked to the project at hand. So they need to understand at least the domain associated with the use case, but then have those the emotional intelligence, so to speak, in terms of courage, in terms of curiosity, in terms of engagement bringing people along dealing with the friction picking up the ball running with it you know um so i think that that's more of the the personality type uh, that should lead and i think but then there's the question of it should it be business or it driven now my view on that is if it's if it's more of a specific area which is driven by a specific business function then it, the, the business lead needs to lead more clearly. If it's more 
kind of a platform-based approach which which cuts across multiple functions, then IT probably needs to, to play more of a role. Or maybe not IT, but the, the technology leader, that digital leader that should be able to cut across those areas. And I think that the new type of IT leadership are able to orchestrate uh, and um, so budget stakeholders, architectures across that platform. Um, and if you know if, if they're not able to, then new people step into that that frame, and those are the the new leaders, right? So the new digital leaders that we see emerging. Um, that would be my my take. I don't know, Frederick, if you've got a, a perspective on that. No, I fully agree, uh, Phil. Uh, because, like you said, you know, if the on one hand the the business are closer to the customer and the market, so they might have some insights, but they might not have the understanding of how to drive the digital or what the solutions should be. You know, then it's better that. You keep actually the IT department who are more in the forefront of the technical development to lead it, you know, so I fully agree with your analysis there. Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's get to one more question uh, real quick before we close, which is um, our last digital initiative uh, did not go well. Um, and how do we bounce back from that from a cultural perspective? Frederick, so, I think you should have the lead-off answer on that one. <laughs> yeah, let's yeah, put Frederick in the hotspot. Uh, yeah, know. thanks. But it's an interesting question, of course. You know, I mean, they've been probably marketing this as a big thing, you know, and the big change. And if it's a failure, then no one has a belief in in the technology. If it is, a, if it's a specific technology they were doing or that product, you know. And then how to how do you get people convinced, you know? And again, back to my point, I think then you need to start small. Maybe you should launch a couple of other initiatives, you know, that you can get some uh, uh, pilots or something that shows that this is actually working. And then you take the biggest steps and launch it mm -hmm. at, at the biggest scale, you know, because then people will build back the belief in it and see that it is actually working. But if you do it in a different way, maybe. And of, of course, you can make an analysis on that specific product saying, why did it fail? You know, was it resistance? Was it lack of knowledge or the resource or whatever it might be? You know, you find the reason for it. But then again, you know, I'm a fun believer in saying that you can show and prove that it's working in a small scale, then it's easy to scale it. So that's my point on take on that. And Phil probably has some good points as well. Yeah, I think what we've heard is is this notion of moving to a ritual descent type of model where you are willing and everyone accepts the idea that you should take feedback if something doesn't go according to plan then you have an open discussion and people provide their feedback. You're not allowed to defend yourself. You basically hear the feedback and, but there's no blame off the back of that and you move forward quickly, you know? So, but that's a culture that, I mean, you've got to develop that culture over time. If you're used to a, a blame culture, then it, it, it's difficult, but you, mm -hmm. that's the objective. You can get to that. Then it's amazing what can be done because it's a sense of honesty and, but at constructive feedback as part of the conversation. 100% agree with that. I think, you know, organizations that are very, very political and kind of what I call zero-sum type organizations that someone, there's winners and losers, that's really hard to implement the type of culture that Frederick's talked to, you know, dare to dream, dare to fail, dare to innovate. So, you know, the advice that I have is absolutely, even though people don't like doing post-mortems and sometimes it's hard, you know, do one that's very honest and, and think about how you remove the impediments of the past failure and then make sure that you're doing projects for the right reasons. You know, I can't comment too much on the reason for the failure without understanding more, 
but you know it might be that the they have the right wrong expectations or the wrong team or what have you so you know digesting it so that you don't repeat uh say the reasons for the failure again is really important but you also have to have a, a culture that does allow people to move forward and and take some chances because you know even even the the best performing people in the world and i'll go back to my sports analogy to wrap up you know they they don't every time they have a strike on goal they don't make a goal every time you know lebron james in the u.s takes a shot he doesn't necessarily make a point right you know even the people in the hall of fame in baseball didn't bat 100 percent so you have to figure out what your tolerance level is for failure and map that into the cultural expectations of a business. Obviously, you want to minimize that. If you think about statistical normal distribution, you want most of your projects to be successful. You might have some small tail positive ones that far exceed the expectations, but you're also going to have some failures, i.e. your small tail negative outcomes and, and that you have to recognize and move forward on. That makes sense. Very good insights. So Frederick, uh, Phil and Marnie, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you all being here and sharing your wisdom. So thank you for that. Uh, and everyone that joined, thank you as well. Be sure to visit IDC and IFS to find some of their content. You can also check out Future of Field Service and hear some uh, stories from the industry. Thank you for being here and hope everyone has a great day.